just so you know, this is our strategy overall, what we're trying to accomplish. Here's the role that I need you to play in that. I need you to make some great strategy choices in this area that are consistent with mine. And I'll help you if you want. We can have talks about it if we want. If you go away and think long and hard about it and can't come up with any choice that's consistent with mine, come tell me because then either my choices have to change or I have to divest you because you don't fit within a company. And that'll be fine. We'll find a happier home for you. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I am speaking with and learning from Roger L. Martin. Roger's unusual. He was a successful business consultant and then decided reasonably early in his career that he should give back to his native Canada and he felt Canada needed a world-class business school. So he created the Rotman School of Management or elevated the Rotman School of Management at the time, he said it was a bit rubbish. He then did the same thing with Canadian tennis. They were a bit of a joke, and now they are a global tennis powerhouse. Some intriguing things around being a business writer and academic, and that those two things are somehow at odds with each other, which I hadn't appreciated. He thinks that strategy and execution are the same thing, and anyone who thinks otherwise is mad. He thinks OKRs can be delusional and that people who believe putting out a BHAG or an objective and just hoping that saying it out loud or writing it down has any impact on making it come true is delusional. He believes, we only touch on this a little bit at the end, he believes that paying sales commissions is madness and that the only thing it does is causes you to spend more time on negotiating goals and objectives. And he's got some interesting business book recommendations at the end. But I could have spoken to Roger all day. And in fact, even after we stopped recording, we carried on chatting for another 20 minutes about various topics. So a fantastic conversation. Roger is a contrarian, a prolific author, 13 books, loads of articles in the Harvard Business Review. All of them have that same contrarian flair. So I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'm sure you will find something here where you disagree vehemently with something he has to say, which I always enjoy. So on to Roger Martin. I'm Roger Martin. I'm a former dean of the Rotman School of Management, former strategy consultant at Monitor Company. And now I spend my time advising CEOs on strategy and writing books and columns. And the fact that you are an academic that also advises CEOs, as opposed to one or the other, makes you, must make you pretty rare. Maybe it's not rare lower down, but at the sort of higher echelons, you know, thinkers 50, management thinker of, of the world and author and Dean, and then sort of CEO, CEO advisor, that must make you quite rare. Uh, yeah, I guess there aren't a whole lot of us. I mean, my hero, manager or managerial hero is Peter Drucker, and that's what he did. But he was he was an unusual. I mean, the current academy, as it's constructed now, pretty much frowns on speaking to CEOs. So it, I think it is more rare now 
the, what I learned, because I was a business guy who went into the academic world as public service in my home country of, of Canada, what I learned is that fealty is incredibly important in the academic world, uh, or at least the business academic world. Like I should, I should stick to the territory I know from 21 years of being in it. And fealty means speaking only to other academics. <laughs> It does. It does. I mean, you laugh, but it's, 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 that's, it took me, it took me 10 or 15 years to figure out that's the real trigger. So that if you speak to non-academics, like actually focus on it, like by writing an article or a a book that is, uh, that is to be read by non-academics, it's like you're a married man who has decided to sleep with uh, women other than your wife or your married woman and you're, it, it's it's exactly it's exactly the same so it's just not showing full fealty to your tribe and it's kind of sad but every best-selling book that a a business academic writes lowers his or her prestige within the academy oh i never realized that so when I look, so when I look at people and go, this is a successful business author, actually, from an academic perspective, they've just dropped a couple of rungs on the ladder. Yeah. And if you write an HBR article, rather than that adding to your academic CV, it subtracts from your academic CV. In fact, most, most schools, my own included in, the, in a tenure review process, would not consider that an article. Huh. Because it's designed to be read by 360,000 mainly business people, 95% of which are business people, or the other 5% are probably tenured academics. But Yeah, and you've, read, you've written quite a few articles in HBR. So you're, luckily for you, you've retired. You're not looking for another job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you, ha- you, have to, you have to sort of be a bit of an outsider to do that. You know, again, I did what I did for patriotic reasons. I felt Canada needed one uh, globally relevant business school. Uh, we didn't have one. Uh, by the time I left, we had one. Um, and so that was my my goal. They, The University of Toronto saw fit to make me a full professor. So I didn't have to worry about, you know, am I, you know, accepted or not? And I was successful enough at it that I think the most academically strict people in the faculty sort of put up with me and said, well, he'll just do his weirdo stuff, but he's made us a great school. I have more research money. I have more prestige now. And the people who were, who were um, closer into, into me would come to me and say, well, how do you write a popular business book, right? How do you think about it? Who, Who do you get to help you? And so it was all fine, but I was doing essentially illicit stuff (laughs) what a fantastic legacy though to have an ambition to create a globally recognized business school and then be able to step away and say job done yeah yeah no it it was fun i mean i like i guess i like doing stuff like that i was i was on the board of tennis canada the canadian tennis federation like your lta lawn yeah association this was 2005 we were absolutely nowhere hadn't had a you know consequential player in over a decade etc and when i went on the board with a a little cadre of essentially three board members and the guy we hired as ceo we said we're going to make canada a leading tennis nation and most people in fact all canadians got laughed at us and said you're goofballs but we now are we are now the envy of most countries have uh, the best cadre of young players have had now Grand Slam singles champion, which we never had before, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my thing. My thing is if they you just don't have to accept that your competitive position you know, is terrible and you don't have to accept the fact that if you have no resources, which we had, we didn't have any resources at the Rotman School. We had a budget of $13 million, including a $2 million deficit at Tennis Canada. We had one one hundredth the amount of money that France or UK or uh, US spends because each of a Grand Slam and makes some un- unbelievable amounts of money. The Wimbledon All England Tennis Club sends a check for 80 million pounds to the LTA every year. Say, so do whatever you want with it. You know, our whole budget for high performance development at, in Canada was less than 2 million. 
in the course of 15 years, we, we made it one of the best, full stop. And so in those two, your new book, A New Way to Think, which is a, a management guide, it sort of takes a look at the things that people think you need to do in management and turns some of them on their heads. Were you using the tools that you outline here to solve those problems at Rotman and, and Tennis Canada? Absolutely. I eat my own dog food, my, my friend. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, yes, I'm a practitioner. I did this at Monitor Company, at Skoll Foundation, et cetera. I practice what I write about. And when it's on the line for me, that is what I do. I use the principles of that book to do all of my investing. I have the oddest investment portfolio. Whatever net worth I have is in cash and, and angel investing. Nothing in between. <laughs> to make decisions on what to invest in. And I do knock on wood. I do quite well. And I use the principles in that book to decide what to invest in or not. So yeah, I eat the dog food. Talk me through that then. So somebody comes to you for wanting you as an angel investor, what principles here are you applying to that to decide whether they get your cash? I start out with, uh, with strategy and just, just say, talk me through your strategy. And if I get from them, a clear sense of where they are going to play and where they're not and how they have a theory for competing there that would make them better than anybody else who competes there, then I will consider investing. I do not look at any financial projections. Typically, I don't look at the financials at all, actually, (laughs) because all future revenues, as I point out in the book, all future revenues are made up completely right? They're not your choice. Your costs are not made up because who's the customer of your costs? You, you decide how many people hire, how many square feet to lease, how many raw materials to buy, all of, all of that. How about revenues? Who's the customer of your revenues? Other people. So you're just making stuff up when, whenever you put revenues on, on a forecast. And if you're a startup, it's just all made up. So if you actually have to depend on a income statement, a future income statement in order to invest your smoke and dope. So I quiz them enough about what is their theory of advantage. And then I just ask myself the question, okay, for that to be, I use what would have to be true, which I talk about in the book, the most important question in strategy, what would have to be true for his or her theory to come true? And I make an assessment of whether it is or not. And I'll often ask them questions about, okay, well, what's the assumption about customers when faced with your option versus the ones you're competing And what leads you to believe that they will choose you? And if I get good answers, answers that click enough for me, I, I'll say, sure. And if not, there's nothing they can do. They can't say, well, I'll sell you it at half of, of what I'm what I'm uh, suggesting or a quarter of what I'm suggesting. I'm just like, no, this isn't going to work. And so that always ends badly. Uh, <laughs> so I don't want to be part of something that ends badly. You're testing their innate business nows against your model there. Yeah. I guess they're not pitching you having read your work and taking it through a lens and saying, well, what, what, how would we need to pitch this to Roger? They're just sort of turning up with an idea and saying, look, we're going to become the number one of this in this space. And this is the total addressable market. And, and you're going, okay, so they've got some focus. They know where their differentiators are. They know what they're like relative to the competition and they've got an innate passion and sense for the market. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of it just is, do they, do they have a logical structure that holds together, right? When you ask the, well, and what about this? And what about that? If they can say, well, you know, that's why that's not a concern uh, because of X, Y, Z. But if they say, hmm, I haven't thought about that, or that's not an important question, you know, that's a bad idea with me. That's not an important question. That's a bad idea for any customer, actually. Are you getting in before pre-product, pre-revenue? Uh, sometimes and sometimes not often, often not. Yeah. I mean, uh, cause I, now, so I, I say I only do angel investing. I only start with angel investing. And so sometimes I've had in situations where I've had five rounds of investment and by, ah, okay. that, and by that time they're, they're kind of way off into sometimes even 
cash flow break even but that's just following following along because if i like if i like something I, I i typically try to maintain my share as i go along yeah one of the things you say is that strategy and execution aren't separate things they're the same thing and i will probably go to my grave not, <laughs> not convincing people of this. i mean there's there are some of these things on that are just just so ingrained in people's minds they typically are backed by a metaphor. So in that case, the metaphor that's in people's minds that they cannot get out of it is a mind-body, right? So my mind decides, lift your right arm, Roger, and the body executes on the mind's decision, right? And so people just say, that's life. And it's so hard to convince them. My take on it is, you know, if you can give me a definition of execution that is different than strategy. Just just the activities involved in it are different than strategy, then okay, you win. And I've tried that many times and they say, well, you know, strategy is deciding and then executing is doing. And I say, okay, let's just look and say, you know, what's engaged in that doing thing that you've you've just referred to because what we have to say based on the structure that i've set up where you've got to explain how execution is different than strategy you said strategy is deciding right so it's choosing it's choosing to do something versus versus another thing so doing can't involve choosing right otherwise you haven't met the test right so does that mean that the people who are executing essentially make no choices whatsoever? You've specified it to an extent that your direction is put your left foot in front of your right foot and then your right foot in front of your left foot and your right and left foot in front of your right foot and and then stop and then turn around and you know okay so if if that's it then that then I'll accept it that's that's what execution is. But, you know, when I watch the thing you call execution in action in a company, when somebody declares they've got a strategy and then uh, then I watch them order somebody to execute, you know what I sort of find? I, I just find them thinking about, okay, let's see, what do we do here? Um, I know what he wants to have happen. Uh, we could do this or we could do that or we could do that. And then I start to say, gee, that that sounds remarkably similar to what the guy who gave them or the gal who gave them the, the execution directions just did. And of course that is what happens. So I've yet to, I've, I've issued this challenge many times and all I get is garbage back. My least favorite book, a business book of all time is, is a book called execution by Ram Sharan and Larry Bossidy. And the really fascinating thing about the book is Right. It, it starts out by making this this strong case that the big problem in the business world is all these sort of effete, they, they don't use that word, but sort of these effete people doing strategy when it's really all about execution and it's about the discipline of execution. And so I say, okay, okay. So I'm waiting for execution. So it's a book, the title of which is Execution. Do you know when the first definition of execution happens? 27 pages in. So we've got 26 pages of st stuff in a book called execution that's about all sorts of things things like how strategy is bad and this discipline of execution whatever the hell it is we don't know yet but this discipline of execution is is important and then finally we get to the definition of execution right and the definition of execution is execution is the strategy process the operations process and the people process so i sort of say okay I kind of get your logic. This is like the old trick. You can, you can do this trick with people. Try this trick with people. I'll, I'll try it with you and see. Which is more popular, hot coffee or coffee? Coffee. Yeah, it is true. Most people say hot coffee because it's by far and away the biggest form of coffee, right? It's probably 80% of coffee. And then there's people, some drink, drink chilled, chilled coffee in the summer and, and the like. And they say, well, that's small. So hot coffee is the biggest. But of course, coffee as a category includes every single cup of hot coffee. So even if one person in the entire world likes chilled coffee, then coffee beats hot coffee. So if you say 
strategy, uh, execution is way, way, way more important. It's all about execution, not about strategy. Then a great way to win that argument is to say execution includes strategy. Then you're automatically right. Yeah. So anyway, it's just a, it's just a, it's just like a stupid book from from start to finish. <laughs> not one, one, one bit of useful logic, one bit of useful logic in it. But that's the state of this dialogue about strategy and and uh, execution. I mean, I do see firms that appear to lack strategy, but are doing lots of stuff. Mm-hmm. And when they put in place some direction, then they end up doing less, well, their stuff ends up being more focused and they're going in one direction as opposed to not. And say, in your definition of strategy and execution are the same thing, what was it they were lacking at the beginning that for me felt like they were lacking strategy? Well, you may be observing something that you think that the decisions they've made, you are your decisions, right, as a company. You just add up all the decisions that everybody made throughout the organization, right? Yeah, that's what you are, your decisions. So what I would argue that you are feeling is that when I look at all the decisions they've made, I can't really comprehend what they're trying to accomplish. They're clearly doing stuff, but I kind of don't get it, right? That, that would be, the, I think, the normal reason for you feeling queasy about them. And, and in the book, you talk about the people hate the annual strategy process, yeah, because it doesn't lead to any clarification of strategy. Right, right. Because right. because because they don't actually make any choices. As I was reading it, my pet peeve is the annual appraisal process, and 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 I, it brings me out in a rash just yeah. thinking about it. But it's the same thing. It's like this this thing that everybody feels they have to do that, but but nobody can see why they're doing it, and it, they all think it adds no value, but they do it year after year after year. Exactly. And that's why you get the the, the Ramshrans and Larry Vossity sort of saying, well, that's bad. Well, that's bad because it isn't strategy. It's it's something, it's some pathetic uh, theater exercise. But back to your ex- example, all, all I want in that company that you're queasy about is for there to be a stronger logic that ties together all the choices that they're making. And I want... There to be logic at the top that says, here's what we're trying to accomplish as a company. I want, if it has five businesses, I want the logic in each of the five businesses to make sense for how to win in those businesses and to have something about the five of them together that makes the company stronger. And then within each of the five businesses, I want them to have good choices to be made about geographically, where they, where they what countries they go in, what individual product lines, what distribution channels. You need all of those choices to be coherent and add up to a whole. And what that means to me is not saying this, we're going to define a strategy and what you're doing something else, but rather for the person at the top of the overall company to be saying to businesses, one, two, three, four, five, business one, just so you know, this is our strategy overall, what we're trying to accomplish. Here's the role that I need you to play in that. Right. And I need you to make some great strategy choices in this area that are consistent with mine. Right. And I'll help you if you want. We can have talks about it if we want. If you go away and think long and hard about it and can't come up with any choice that's consistent with mine, come tell me, because then either my choices have to change or I have to divest you because you don't fit within a company that'll be fine we'll find a happier home for you but what's better than saying i'm making strategy and you dom who work for me are executing it it's i'm making the strategy choices that i got asked to do by the board of directors they said you're the ceo you make the choices and now i need you as business unit president of business unit a i need you to make a a set of choices if companies did that, they'd have better what's considered now execution, right? You make better choices and they would be consistent. Yes, it's the, I mean, as you were using your metaphor of mind and hand, yeah. 
you know, once you dig into the neuroscience of that, quite often the thing that you think is conscious thought and your movements aren't actually what you think at all, right? Um, exactly, yeah. But, yeah. but, you know, that whole, I suppose that asking for logical thought and then being able to communicate that logical thought, choice and intent through the organization. In either model, there's no more or less choices being made. Right. It's just there's a context for those choices which is shared from the top to the bottom of the organization. Exactly. And a feeling, in this case, of Dom as having his boss really appreciate how challenging a job it is and how much your job is similar to my job rather than making you feel more distant from me by saying your job is completely different than, than mine. And again, I eat my own dog food on this. So when I took over the Rotten School, we were a crummy school, and they hired me as dean. It was probably the worst graduate faculty and professional school at University of Toronto. That's what they would have said. And they wanted me to make it one that they could be proud of rather than that they could be embarrassed about. That was my job. The president and the provost gave me that job. I needed to create a strategy that would fulfill the desire that led to my hiring. And that was my job. That was not somebody else's job. That was my job. Did I consult widely in the organization? Absolutely, because I wanted to get the best ideas. But did I sort of ask them, the organization, you know, kind of like, what do you think I should do? You know, no, that's my, that's my job. <laughs> And so I and I so I say what well, we all in order to be uh, Canada's first globally consequential business school, we have to win, be the best, and the relevant competitive set in each of our degree programs, right? So you know we've got a PhD program, we've got a commerce undergraduate program, we've got a full time MBA, we've got an executive MBA, we've got a part time MBA, you know, we've got a bunch of program of master finance, got a bunch of a bunch of programs, right? And I just said, well, to fulfill that, we have to be the best in each of those programs or not in it at all. Within Canada? Well, it depended on some programs are more cash area. So it would be actually in greater Toronto area because they're fully employed and you can only get other might be Canada. Other would be globally. It kind of depended. So then I go to Beatrix Dart, who I had hired, a wonderful woman who I had hired to run the executive MBA program and said, Beatrix, you know, this is a catchment area program. You're really competing in the greater Toronto kind of area, maybe towns a hundred miles away, but but people aren't going to travel farther for that. Okay, so you're there. And right now, the best we could possibly say is that we're third and really far behind number one. And we might be tied for third and we might be fourth. Okay. Uh, and so you've got you to redesign this program. I will help you with resources. I will help you think about it if you want me to, to help you think about it. But the goal is to make it the best. And if we can't, we'll shut it down. Now, I'd like you and we'll find something else for you to do, but we'll just shut it down. Harvard Business School doesn't have an EMBA program. Stanford doesn't have an EMBA You don't have to have an EMBA program. Uh, many other schools do, but we don't have to. And it's better to not have one than have a crappy one because we're not going to be crappy anymore. That's the task. That's what I call strategic choice chartering. I charter a choice and say it's got to fit with my strategy, but it's a big choice I do not know how you're going to do it, right? Because you're closer to it than me. I can't spend the time on it. You're, you live this. You spend the time on it. I'll help you. You can come and talk to me about this anytime. Anytime uh, you want, go do it. She did. She completely restructured it, created a format for it that was unlike anything else in the world at the time. It's been copied uh, since. And within about five years, we were clear number one in the marketplace and she'd get invited to all these sort of nerd fests aacsb and whatever to talk about her marvelous transformation of the of the program they didn't ask me right why i didn't do it she did it right she's the one who could speak authoritatively about how you rethink a, a program etc big vision yeah and then the right people i don't think of it that way to be honest i mean i think of it as those people having the choices wisely chartered uh, to them. So it wasn't so much big vision. I had a strategy. Here's the, what we're going to do, and here's the kind of things we're going to do in these areas. Research, Peter Pauly, the vice dean academic. Right now we got this thing where if you had two people applying to the school, each with uh, the same number of publications of equal quality, and one's well-known to be an asshole and a terrible teacher, and the other is a great guy or gal and a fabulous teacher, we'd flip a coin. 
It's <laughs> absolutely true. It's absolutely true. I said, we're not going to do that. We're going to build a cadre of professors who like working together, are, are not jerks, and care about teaching, and are great researchers. You figure out how we're going to do that, Peter. So it's not just broad vision. There had to be enough specificity for mine to be a strategy, but it wasn't going to happen unless Peter made great choices, Jim Fisher made great choices, Petrix Dart made great, uh, great choices, and they knew that. And so when we turned the place around, right, yes, did, did I get a lot of credit? Yes. But all those people are, are heroes. I was just thinking, though, about Beatrix there, where, you know, you said, look, it, this program needs to be number one, otherwise we're going to shut it down. Now, that's a strategic choice. But Beatrix was the person who could have executed and say it was somebody else instead. Did you get lucky by having somebody who could execute on that? Well, for starters, she did not execute on anything. But you can't get out of it, Dom. You can't get out of using the word. What can yeah, I no, it's, uh, it, you know, I don't think I got lucky. I think there's an upward spiral there, right? Which is I got people who didn't want to execute, right? I got a, people who wanted to make important decisions and be recognized as making important decisions, to have a dialogue with me about how they fit in the making of important decisions. So yeah, Beatrix was excellent, but it wasn't an accident that she was working at the Rotman School. She was a super talented person who had another career. She was an ex-McKinsey consultant and terrific. I suppose what I'm getting at is, could the strategic choice have been right, but the person was, you know, you had the wrong person in the seat? Absolutely. But see, I would find that out pretty quickly, right? Because they couldn't come up with a strategy. And, and yes, I had to sack people. Not that many people assumed I was this business guy. I was going to come in and sack everybody I didn't, uh, and reorganize everything. I, I reorganized, you know, kind of very little and then didn't sack all that many people. It feels culturally very liberating. You haven't used the same words uh, that John Doerr uses when he talks about OKRs, but it sounds as though that cascading down people are presented with a you called it charter didn't you creating a charter and it sort of then flows through the organization so people can see how the choices that they make cascade back up or level back up yeah i mean i'm not for what it's worth and i've written in my medium series on this I'm not a fan of management by okrs people unfortunately use OKRs as a substitute for strategy. And so they set, they set out a, a bold objective and then measurements of how you would know you're achieving that, right? With no strategy that would say you're ever going to meet that objective. And I've seen this all over. I, a bunch of my clients are Silicon Valley clients and it's a, it, it is a disease. It's like people actually think that by stating an objective, you are more likely to get it. Like, where on earth did this insane idea come uh, from? <laughs> but isn't that what you did? You said we're going to become a globally important business school in Canada. Isn't that the same thing? I mean, except that you believe that yours was, ra you could actually achieve it. Yeah, and I had a rationale behind how we could position ourselves to win in doing that. Oh, so you, you what you mean is when somebody just makes some shit up, and yeah. says it, and then thinks that it will happen. It's from the, this whole BHOG thing. It's they have a big, hairy, audacious goal, and somehow that it, it's, it's not unlike shareholder value. You know, when you have your strategy, well, my strategy is to maximize shareholder value. You actually think by saying that you're going to get more shareholder value to happen. All I need is in those objectives, right? All I say is I do not want OKRs as a uh, as a substitute for strategy in Silicon Valley. Most of the time, not all of the time, most of the time, OKRs are a substitute for strategy. And that's why there's so much disappointment. And you know what the diagnosis is when there's disappointment. So we set out the OKRs, everybody, we cascaded them down the organization, and then we got what? Poor execution. That's always the diagnosis. We got poor execution. And then I look at the strategy and say, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> you literally think that what's your best example nah i i, I, <laughs> I, 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 this, uh, no, I yeah. okay okay 
I can't, I can't, uh, I can't give it, but I, but I can just promise you, I've just seen so, so many of them where, where by stating an objective, like that's the fundamental thing. If I state this objective, it'll be more likely to happen. I don't know how that follows. Austin Powers had something to say about that. Your fellow country, countryman. <laughs> you may want golden toilets, but you're not going to get them, right? So it's all the logic, Dom. And that's why, you know, I talk in the book about what would have to be true. You have to have a logical structure where you ask what would have to be true for indeed me to end up in this position in this market. That's what I had to ask for the Rodman School. What would have to be true for us to be able to end up in this position in this, in, in this market? And then you test that out and say, well... Um, these things aren't true now, but here's how I think I could make them true. These others are true. And so I'm going to pick this. We're going to be the school that, that stands for, interesting enough, our tagline, uh, was a new way to think. It's going to stand for, for that. We're going to reinvent business education. Integrative thinking, design are going to be central to it. It's about creating the future. And we're going to have programs that express that in the best sort of way. So I had a logic behind why that business education is tired. Uh, the companies, because I know the companies better than all the uh, virtually all the other business school deans. Here's what they want. Here's what students care about. We can create something, but it's going to take this kind of this kind of professoriate, Peter, it's going to take this kind of programs, Jim, again, Beatrix, et cetera. It's going to take this kind of student, uh, student services in order to have that thing happen. Now, I will admit that most people thought I was nuts and, and we were so far behind number one that at my first faculty council where I unveiled this, that I was told, you know, well, that's insane. And if we could only close the gap with this number one, so we wouldn't feel so badly about being so far behind, that would be a huge accomplishment. <laughs> now, bless him. The guy who stood up and said that, who was one of the most senior faculty members, came back to me five years later and said, thought you were nuts. Thanks for not listening uh, to us because we're now number one. And you go to academy of management with, with your chest puffed up. And when people come up to you and say, how do I get a job at, at Rotman? Like it feels good. I had a logic for the strategy. That having been said, I did not have a logic for how it is that Beatrix would make Emba the best. Yeah. I just, I, I mean, that was just too much. And, and even worse from my perspective was Peter Pauly. I did not know how you recruit, like I do nothing about the academic world, I didn't know how you recruit professors, you know, kind of what you had to pay them, all, all of that kind of stuff. He had, I don't know, 20 or 30 years of experience and and thinking about that. So I needed him to come up with a strategy, a set of choices for how we were going to recruit, who we were going to recruit. I, I mean, I had some ideas. We were partners, partners in it, but I needed that. If I would have told Beatrix and Jim and Peter, et cetera, Mary Ellen to, to just go execute, we would not be the business school we are today, full stop. Because they're gonna say this sucks. This job sucks. I hate. I hate my job. And and that guy thinks he knows everything. And how? Because sometimes you get you get people who are capable and can come up with a logic and can come up with a plan. And yet the people who've employed them said they wanted something, but then didn't like the choices that they were gonna. I'm just wondering, how did you know, or maybe you didn't know, maybe it, maybe you had to work your way through it. You know, that look, the world is full of diet books and the world is full of gyms and lots of people get every day, get up every day and say, I wish I was fitter. I wish I was thinner and yet aren't prepared to put the effort in. And so, you know, how did you know the school in hiring you would actually give you the freedom? Uh, I, I didn't, I had to, I had to make a, make a bet. But let me give you an example of something that I think gets to gets to your point of, about sort of the, the flow back and forth. So one of the one of the fabled people who t turned around the school was a wonderful woman named uh, Mary Ellen Yeomans, who was the, they call him CAO, Chief Administrative Officer. So really think if you're thinking corporate, it's CFO, yeah. uh, with a little bit broader, even, even portfolio. And so I had sort of done enough of the economics to know that, that we had to dramatically increase revenues. We ended up doing it. I inherited $13 million school. I left at $130 million school. But I had this, this 5442 kind of 
plan. We would quintuple endowment, quadruple tuition, quadruple executive education, and double the the size of the uh, the student population. And if we had that, we'd have we'd have enough to kind of do what I thought we needed to do across across the school. So I went to Mary Ellen Yeoman and said, Mary Ellen put together the economics. I want to see these are my back of the envelope economics put together sort of a more detailed kind of plan for me about how financially this would work. And and she's really smart. She was underutilized. She was a Barnard grad who's who's up. Her husband was on the American, another American on the faculty. She was like really smart and, uh, and the like. And But she kept coming back to me with the cost side. Here's how you'd build out the cost, Roger, and nothing on the revenue side. And I was like, you know, after she came back several times and I'd say, and yeah, and the revenue side, she'd finally, uh, I said, I got a little bit, a little bit sort of uh, pointed with her. I said, Marianne, this is now three straight times I've given you the task. And each time you come back and don't have anything on revenues. Um, and she finally sort of fessed up and said, essentially, well, boss, you know, kind of the way the university works is revenues are an allocated number. The provost just decides all the money flows into the provost, who's sort of the COO, for those of you who don't know the academic kind of uh, stuff. He's sort of the COO, all the deans report. To, uh, all flows into this big pot, and he allocates on an annual basis what is everybody's revenues. So I said, are, are, are you, like, serious? And she said, well, it's not quite that way. There's some things that automatically come to you, but by and large, you can't know it's all speculative, Right. This is the kind of important flowback that you need. You need to have this dialogue with, with the flowback. And I'm like, oh, then we can't do this. We cannot turn around the school. But then I march over to the provost and the president and say, here's the deal. You guys want me to turn around the school. I have a plan for how to uh, 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 turn around the school. Here's the kind of things I'm going to do. And it doesn't require you to give us more money. We're going to get more money. We just need to know how much of it we're going to get. You can tax us. I understand that's the way this this works. There's a big tax game here that you got to fund the fund the the kind of the university overhead with. But we need to have a formula by which, if we go out and get this more revenue, that we will get a known amount of it. And they ended up saying, "Okay, that makes sense." And they ended up getting rich offices because they you know they they were getting four million of our. 13 million and ended up getting 40 million of our 130 million. So they did really, really, really well uh, by us. But we had a stable enough platform that we could plan for the future. That's what you get when you don't talk about execution, right? You get a dialogue with people where you can learn the things that you've got to do to change your context to make something possible that wasn't. Right? And it was very controversial at the time in the university. People said, oh, we're getting some special deal. The whole university now works that way. So we actually taught the university a better way to allocate resources. It's interesting. Now you've told me that story. That story is like the latest article in Harvard Business Review about managing talent. Yes. And creating your own special case. I mean, that's, that, that's you doing, effectively, you living out that article in HBR says, you know, if you've got great people, you've got to treat them differently. Yeah, you got to treat them special. And, you know, the fun thing for Peter and Mary Ellen, for example, was when they went to meetings of all the vice deans or she meetings of all the CAOs and they'd say, well, Mary Ellen, what, are, what kind of stuff are you doing? She'd like rhyme off the stuff she's doing and their reaction would be, you got to be kidding me. Your dean lets you do that? And it's not only lets, it's like encourages you to do that. Same with Peter Pauly, right? So, so they all felt completely unique and special. And was this manipulation on my part? No, they were unique and special. It was letting them be what they could be. And they were better than they could have possibly been in the normal way of managing uh, them. So, I mean, I just think that... Managers have to understand the models that they're using and just be critical of them. If they're not getting execution and they're having to complain all the time about execution, I'm not getting 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 execution. Maybe you should ask the question, what is this thing that I'm not getting 
And could it be I'm not getting it because of the way I'm trying to get it? <laughs> totally. That problem is with you. It's yeah. probably not with the team. Yeah, or or on talent. It's like we offered them the the most money that anybody offered them and they still left, right? Rather than saying, I guess we didn't offer them enough, proactively enough or whatever, right? We didn't offer them what they needed. Yeah. We you just thought it yeah. was money. Yeah, yeah. So the the core message of the book is across a whole number of different attributes of management, we have managers who are accepting dominant models, right? It's like they're accepting, you know, well, if the person is sick, you have to, you kind of, you let out some of the bad, bad blood and, and we're going to keep, we're going to keep letting it out until that black blood comes out. And then, then we'll know where the, the person is cured and, and bring around the leeches. Or get the leeches out, get them, get, get them working. I mean, the, the world has had all sorts of theories, you know, and planets have revolved around the earth, right? Like theories last a long time. And I guess I'm trying to send a simple, simple message is that they have to work for you. Yeah. They, they have to work for you. They are your tool. And if the tool doesn't work, get another tool. Don't say the tool is just fine. Uh, it might be anything but just fine. I have similar conversations with people about whether you should pay salespeople commission. Yeah, the answer is no. Oh, well, but you, don't, you don't have to tell me, but that's one of my, when I say that to people, they, you can see their brain melting because they, 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 or they, or they get angry. The only thing that sales, uh, giving people sales commission does is increase the amount of time spent on negotiating targets. There is no other effect other other than that. None. <laughs> Excellent. Roger, what of the many things we spoke, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Oh, I, I guess I wish I had I'd been more patient in my life. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I always sort of had points of view that I didn't feel were being heard. Like early in my consulting career, I'd say, if you do this, this bad thing is going to happen. And they're like, well, I don't know, you're a kid, you know, what do you know? And then the bad thing would happen. And I'm be like, and it wouldn't frustrate the hell out of me. And I should have just said, Hey, that's life. That's life. It, it, it that's the way it, it, it evolves and you have to earn in with people. So just keep doing what you're doing and don't get so impatient about it. Very good. And other than uh, any one of your 13 books, the newest of which is uh, A New Way to Think, available from all good bookstores, what else we know not to pick up execution? Uh, what, <laughs> and uh, which other business books do you think people should pick up or maybe even nonfiction that you've enjoyed? I don't read many business books, to be honest, so I don't have a list to, to recommend. Literally, if they could put up with it, the books that I would recommend to any business person to get better would be Rhetoric by Aristotle, uh -huh. Art as Experience by Dewey. My favorite fiction uh, work that's relevant to the world of business is Lord of the Flies. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's the best leadership book out there. It, it basically, the, the lesson from Lord of the Flies is without leadership, People can quickly figure out that chopping people's heads off and sticking them on sharp sticks is sort of a good idea. Uh, and then the minute leadership shows up, they say, what the hell were we thinking? So it's just a, you know, you've got you to have leadership book. The best book I've, I've read in the last 10 years is an old book by a guy named Fred Hirsch called The Limits to Growth. And I learned a new thing uh, about the world in it. And I, and I recommend it. You're going to have to buy a used copy of it. It's way out of, out of, uh, out of print, but uh, positional goods. He had an analysis back in the seventies of the idea of positional goods being different than other goods. Positional goods are goods where if I have it, you don't. So this would be a limited amount of beachfront in Nantucket. Uh -huh. It positions you above people who have to have non-beachfront 
property because there's only so much of it or a position in the entering class of Oxford or Cambridge. It's a positional good. And then it sets you up for, for benefits from that. And he talked about the dynamics of positional goods and the rise of the importance of positional goods. And he wrote it before it became kind of obvious, like now, you know, oligarchs, you know, have fights for what uh, number of old masters or, or, you know, Matisse's or Renoir's they can uh, accumulate. And the only reason they want to accumulate those is because nobody else can have them. And just, it's a fantastic analysis. He's a Warwick, Warwick professor from around the corner from you. Aha. Uh-huh. And do you think that applies to the froth around NFTs then? Yes. Oh, oh. NFTs are absolutely marketed as positional goods. You have this one and nobody else will ever have it. Yeah. 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 So if you want to, if you want, yes, if you were, if you were an investor or in, in positional goods, my advice would be go read Fred Hirsch, uh, Limits to Growth. Great, great uh, book. And, and, you know, it's just, it's striking in that I, I read it and said, holy shit, I, that's was I did not, I did not have any sort of way of conceptualizing this. I saw manifestations of this thing, but it, it, it didn't strike me as a phenomenon I should think about because it seems sort of like a random kind of thing. Nope, it's not random. There's a thing, and here's how here's how it riffles through the economy. Was his was was you know his so what right? And and it's a pretty good so what. He died very young, very very uh, very soon after. Uh, uh, writing the book. He's not with us anymore. And he died, I think in his forties or, or maybe, maybe fifties, uh, Fred Hirsch. Fred Hirsch. I'll go and look that up. Roger, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you indeed for giving me your time. Likewise. Likewise. This is, this is great. I'd do it anytime. <laughs> Thanks very much. I'll have you back. There's plenty more myth busting or tool busting or whatever to, uh, to do. That'd be brilliant. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.